Good afternoon, y'all. Welcome to another episode of the Reimagining Youth Work podcast. This is now the 11th episode. We are almost ending the season. Uh, We'll have one more episode after this. This week's episode, I get the pleasure of sitting down with Tessie Ojo, who is the executive director of the Diana Award in the UK. Funny, we actually met a couple years ago when I went over to King's College London to do some training on critical mentoring. Tessie reached out to me at that point, and we we almost immediately established this really amazing working relationship. I admire her quite a bit uh, in terms of what she's been able to accomplish as a black executive director, as a leader in the nonprofit space, managing a high profile nonprofit in the UK um, that is supported by royalty, which is amazing. You'll hear her talk a little bit about that. A couple of things I wanted you to really listen for um, with Tessie is the global element here. You know, one of the reasons I really wanted to interview Tessie was I part of my work is really thinking critically about what critical work looks like, not just in the U.S. context, but all over the world. And so having the opportunity to talk to Tessie about what doing work in the UK looks like, uh, what populations, uh, black populations, populations of color in the UK context um, are dealing with, how they see us um, as their American uh, family and and what they're sort of um, thinking about and processing around what we're experiencing here in the American context, just sort of having an exchange around that globalization of this work. Um, Tessie brings a lot of incredible uh, experience to this work and talks a lot about what's happening to um, to black uh, and other multi-ethnic populations in the UK and also talks about how her work really encompasses or really supports um, all of these populations. She's amazing. She does incredible work. She's my sister uh, from another continent. Um, And I'm very proud to be listening to her or to be interviewing her. Have a listen. Enjoy it. Let's get that work. This is Dr. Tori Wieston-Cernan, and you're listening to Reimagining Youth Work. What's good, what's good, what's good, family? Today is a new day of the Reimagining Youth Work podcast, and I'm super excited because I get the opportunity to interview an international colleague, Tessie Ojo, who is the chief executive of the Diana Award, which is a charity legacy to Diana, Princess of Wales. Tessie is a passionate and practical campaigner who has gained an international reputation for fostering positive change in the lives of young people. Hi, Tessie. And see you from across the pond. Yes, it is great to see you from across the pond. Um, I love that I get the opportunity to interview you. So thank you for sitting down with me. Oh, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. I remember the last time we we met up in January. It was such a treat. So to be able to talk to you now is amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I wanted to talk to you specifically, not just because we have a shared interest in mentoring and working with young people, but because the global context is important and you're doing really incredible work in the UK. And I think my audience ought to know what's happening everywhere else in the world, right? 
And I think mm-hmm. um, I got a chance to talk to another mentoring colleague, too, who does who takes young people all over the world. And I think, again, just positioning the global context and recognizing that we're not the only ones sort of facing issues is important. So I'm really excited to hear what you're going to say about what's happening in the UK and all the incredible work that you're doing. Great. Well, I can't wait. And you're right, because our world is a lot more narrow than we don't have walls dividing us anymore. Um, Young people view the world as one big village. Mm -hmm. And it's important that we understand what's happening across that village and also learn from each other um, and understand the trends. When stuff is happening maybe in Canada, sooner or later it will get to me here in, in the UK. And building a community of practitioners across the globe is really, really important. Absolutely, it is. Absolutely. And that's why I'm happy to know you and happy to have been at the first mentoring summit in the UK. I know. How cool was that? Do you know what? That summit was such a was such a miracle, to be honest, because one of the things that's this thinking about the world as a global village has really been on my mind for such a long time. And when you see and in some way, when I look at, I guess, in the States, um, you know, it feels like everyone's bought into, everyone understands the benefit that mentoring brings. And I felt I felt at a time that here in the UK, the mentoring community wasn't as, uh, as together as mm. the mentoring community or what I perceive the mentoring community to be like in the States. Right. And also if, if the mentoring community wasn't brought together, they also didn't have a voice. And we went we went pushing for policy change. Right. And so for me, I, I, I just got angry about, in a, in a good way, about it. And I thought, you know what, let's bring this community together and let's make change happen. So it was amazing to host that first na- National Mentoring Summit in the UK last year. Of course, to have you guys come over was awesome because, like I said, it's about the global village and understanding what's happening across our village. You know, super a treat to have, obviously, the Duke of um, Sussex, Prince Harry, who had just become a father at the time. And, you know, talking about the role of role models Mm -hmm. um, in the life of children was just beautiful. It was. It was amazing. And you again, you and your team, you just you did an amazing job. I was so happy to be a part of it. Thank you. It was it was lovely. We still we still talk about the day. It was really lovely. Yes. So let's start um, by kind of introducing yourself, if you can. Tell us about the work that you're doing at the Diana Award and specifically describe the context of youth needs in the UK so that our audience can understand. Great. So I, I suppose the best way to describe the work we do at the Diana Award is that, you know, Diana in some way, when we think about Princess Diana, we think about her as someone who brought a spotlight on things that perhaps society didn't want to spotlight. When we think about how we think about her as a positive disruptor, um, I remember who would have thought at the time that there was this myth around AIDS and that if you have AIDS and you shake someone with AIDS, um, you will immediately, you know, and she, she brought a spotlight to it. She almost challenged the narrative of the time. And we always talk about, she, she's brought a spotlight to those who society wanted to forget. 
And so part of our, our remit is really pushing the boundaries when it comes to young people and the forgotten middle. We talk about that forgotten middle um, because somehow it feels as if, I suppose in our context in the UK, you have the bottom 10% of young people and you, it, feels, it feels like there is a bit of um, attention given to if you're in that bottom 10. And if you're in the top 10, you make a lot of noise anyway. And uh, so you get a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And yet there's this 80% in the middle that no one really, really caters to. Mm-hmm. Um, so the real core of our mission at the Diana Award is about driving change for those young people, making sure that no one's left behind. Right. Um, and that's that's what we do. So coming back to that context of the UK, like I t- talked about that forgotten middle, um, and the forgotten middle will be naturally those young people who don't have advocates. Um, this is where you see lots of inequality happening, either yes. young people who are young carers or mostly young people from chaotic backgrounds, uh, maybe refugee families, um, young travellers, um, just that whole bunch of young people who generally would coast along if no one really helps advocate for them. So that's kind of where we see ourselves. So we're quite a, in terms of the young people that we specifically work with, we we put it all in a category of young people who are at risk. And so they're probably not in the judiciary, have not had contact with the justice system, but if you project 10 years time, you can almost predict that they will. Yes. And if, if in, it's about challenge saying, let's not wait till that happens. Let's fast forward, let's intervene now so that they don't end up there. Yeah. Positive disruptor, like you said. Positive disruption. That's right. Yeah. So how did you come to this work? Talk a bit about your personal background and, and why this work is important to you. Oh, my God. How long do we have? <laughs> We have some time. We have some time. <laughs> you know, for you know, there, you know, I one of the things that really interests me about life is like is that life isn't always that straightforward. And sometimes you never know where you're gonna end up, but sometimes it's about connecting the dots. And when I look when I think back with the benefit of hindsight, I see various moments in my life that led me where I am today. Mm-hmm. Because naturally, um, you know, I'm one of six children. I'm an only daughter, so um, you know, I, you know, I would probably, if I was classing my family background, I'd probably say definitely that top ten okay. that made a lot of noise, that didn't really have any lack or no understanding of of need mm-hmm. or lack, and therefore mm-hmm. you probably would think, why do you, why are you so passionate about that middle now? And a few things shaped shaped me. Firstly, was when I was, I mean, they had lots of various things, but one of the, for me, one of the biggest things was about my my younger, I lost my younger brother. He was coming up to his 17th birthday and a great guy waiting to go to university and wasn't ill, did nothing happen. And he, he went to bed and just didn't wake up. Really? And... That was, oh that rocked for a family that probably never really had any, um, any hardship or any, your life was completely switched overnight right. because 
you know the certain things you just cannot buy with money <laughs> this was one of them when you realize that actually it doesn't matter what you have you know and and that led me down a path where especially because he had for me i began I, I think i began to battle insomnia because you suddenly think actually i don't want to sleep because that you're not guaranteed tomorrow right when eventually i kind of got over that phase i think what really he was coming up to 17 and I, I knew the dreams and aspirations that he had. And there was something about how can I help create the life he didn't leave, the opportunities he didn't have, how can I help create that for young people? That was one moment. A few years before that, I, I remember, um, so I've been quite tall, I'm six one yeah. and I've been six one for <laughs> since 1914. So I've been tall for a very long time. And I remember when I was much younger, um really having a hard time dealing with being tall. And for some reason, you know, you know what kids are like at the time, you know, picked on you and said things that were not that were unkind. And I remember once my um I, I, I remember once calling my parents together into some form of conference and saying, okay, I've come up with a plan. This is what I'm gonna do to deal with this height. I want to have my legs amputated. And um I know, right? Wow. That was pretty shocking. Yes. And what was <laughs> what was really interesting was my parents saying, sure. Not a problem, but tell us a little bit more about the reasons. And I began to talk about, you know, this is, I like to dance and, you know, the girls in the dance group are quite mean and I like to do this and they're quite mean. And what was interesting was my parents, shortly after that, my parents um, got me into to help organize a, um, a group of kids who were, who didn't have, my mom was a head teacher. Okay. And had a lot of kids who were around her school who didn't have access to like dance lessons or drama lessons and actually got me to run an after school club for those kids um and in doing that it became a massive thing so that for me that was my first flavor yeah. of volunteer and understanding how when you support kids who don't have you know, the magic that you create in their life. Mm -hmm. So that was, I guess, my number one touch point of volunteering. Mm -hmm. Then losing my brother was another touch point. And then my third and final touch point was having my own kids. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, and, you know, you take those phase, those seasons, you have the first season and you, you do that season and it feels like you, you've done it and you're over. Right. You come on to the next season, you do it and it's like, okay, I'm done now. And then for me, when I think when I had my, my, two, my second kid, it, I, there was this overwhelming feeling of, wow, like I'm proper, proper mom now. <laughs> <laughs> But also that overwhelming feeling that I will champion these guys. I will be their advocate and I will do what, whatever it takes mm -hmm. to help them succeed. But also alongside that, almost that silence commitment, the realization that not every child had a champion, not every child had an advocate. 
Mm-hmm. And that for me was the real moment when I thought I'm not going back to my job. Yeah. That was the moment when I began to say, actually, when I think back at those kids when I was 14, that I taught dance and realizing what impact it had on their life. And when I think back to the unfulfilled dreams of my 17 year old brother who, mm-hmm. you know, those three things for me really made me think, do you know what? There's got to be more. It feels like for me, firstly thinking about my brother, it feels like every day of your life, you are here and alive. You almost, you, you have to give it, you have to make it count, yeah. you know? I have to make so many, there are many 17 year olds who were not as lucky as my brother to have everything, mm-hmm. yet they might drift off if no one advocates for them. There are many kids born on the same day as mine who also don't have advocates. Mm-hmm. I have a voice, I have a platform, how can I make that work? And so that's for me, you know, it's a little bit of a long story, but it's a lot oh, of connections it. that finally br- brought me to, the, to this place. Yeah. And those are, those are really powerful touch points. And really they're all about connections and relationships, which is mentoring. Absolutely. Yeah. So you, you absolutely. So you have a legacy of mentoring. I love that. Can I take that? Can I take that as my word? (laughs) You can, you absolutely can. It's beautiful. So I, what's it like, there are going to be people who are listening, but some people will see you. The, for the people who are listening, Tessie is black. <laughs> so I have to make that clear. <laughs> they won't know that from listening to you. Um, so talk to me about that. I think you told me you were Nigerian, right? So, yeah, so my parents are Nigerians. So what, what is, how, does that, how does that influence your work? And then I think I also, just for me and maybe some business folks out there, how is it being a black woman at the head of such a huge foundation like the Diana Award? Ah, so because, <laughs> you, know, I, you, know, I, you know, I'm going to again refer back to one of the things I learned from my mom when she, when at 14, when she said to me, you come and teach these children at dance. And, for, and, you know, we never revisited the conversation about having the amputation. That just never happened. We just never. It was only, I think, about 10 years ago, my father, my mom sadly passed away about 14 years ago. So about 10 years ago, we, we, um, we said to my dad, you know, you must begin to put, write a biography about yourself, you know, You've lived a great life. You've traveled a lot. You were an ambassador. There's so much you've done. It's important that the generation, especially because we don't live in Nigeria, like all of the all of the grandchildren would never really know that foundation. So we want you to capture as much history for our future generations as we possibly can. Yeah. And it was in that document when my dad began to put that he. For the first time, from when I was about 14, 15, I saw in my dad's transcript, he referred to this moment, which I had completely forgotten. Oh, wow. My dad refers to this moment and talks about he's himself and my mom, when I had this conference with them, decided that they needed to help me realize that my identity was not based on my external futures features 
but was intrinsically linked to my values and what I brought to the table. And because they wanted to teach me that, that was part of why they asked me to get involved in volunteering because when I, when you're serving and giving back, it doesn't matter who's serving. You find fulfillment in the fact that you're making a difference. Mm. And in some way you stop being, one of the things they said was they wanted to help me be less self-conscious and understand that I had more inside of me, mm. which was, which I only, like I said, I only saw this 10 years ago, but I, absolutely it worked. Right. Because there was something about the knowing that I had something to offer that didn't really matter to me what shell that came in. Mm. The irony of this as well is when I think about, someone said to me actually once, um, she said, you know, Princess Diana is probably having a la- at the last laugh because she was a disruptor in life and in death. Mm. And it's ironical that the person who heads her charity, you know, <laughs> is not what everyone thinks. Right. Do you know what I mean? And it again is that, well, if we're going to disrupt, let's disrupt the entire thing and let's always challenge what people expect. Let's always push the boundaries of what's expected. Um and so, yes, so in some way, I think, I guess, I don't know if, I'm actually, if I've answered the question because my, I've probably <laughs> um, gone off ra- radar, but I guess that's, in some way, I've always approached the work, my work. That doesn't mean that I don't have challenges, mm-hmm. but I always approach, approach the work in a sense that, firstly, um, I'm good at what I do. I know my stuff. <laughs> like I really know my stuff and I I'm here to disrupt the system. And if someone has a problem with the, with the person, then you're probably the type of system I want to disrupt anyway. Point blank. <laughs> Period. As we say, <laughs> thank you for that. So one of the things I want to explore with you is how, the British context in terms of serving youth might be different from the American context. I was talking Mm. to my wife this morning just about, um, I studied literature undergrad and I was telling her about the different, you know, experiences that I had in my British lit class versus my American lit class and just how we talk about things and, you know, just sort of how we, how we work through issues. Um, So I'm really interested in finding out more about, you know, how does it, how does it look different in Britain? How is youth work how is it the same, right? And and how is it and how is it different? Do you know? I, I suppose so. It's really interesting because I see both sides, and especially <laughs> when I um I suppose there's one. So I guess you would know that, like in the UK, we are there's a lot of discomfort around things like race. There's still a huge degree of discomfort and. And I struggle with that. No, I, I think we need to get better at that because until we um, talk about it enough, we probably won't properly address it. Um, but but in terms of youth work, we we um, the good thing is we let me try and think about the, some of the main. I, the, one of the things that I know is, for example, I've seen in the US that you do almost 
identity-based youth work, which is not, and I guess, which identity is a huge thing in the US. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas in the UK, we don't do a lot of identity-based work. You and I, that's part that some of that is part of our nervousness around identity, mm, mm. Um, which might be a good thing or a bad thing. It might be that we're not specifically addressing the needs of specific groups. In some way, again, the UK is quite a class based system, and people are more accepting of that, and therefore, youth work is almost based around that class structure. Okay. It, it, not necessarily the identity of the person. And so when we talk about social mobility, for example, is really moving people out of, not necessarily about moving everybody up one class system, but it's about helping people um, have choices, have the choice, giving young people particularly the choice to break out of um whatever glass ceilings have been put on them based on the class system. So I suppose that's one of the big, huge differences. So it, again, it's like us, we, we work particularly, we work quite broadly, we look at inequality. Um, we don't do either uh, gender-based work okay. or particular or identity-based work, but it's broadly, how can we, tackle inequality and poverty right. knowing that do you see what I mean so it's quite it's a little bit more generic than the specifics um that has happened in the states got it so then when when things like I mean I know recently in our country we had the Ahmad Arbery situation which has been yes quite disturbing depressing all of those words I'm I'm thinking specifically about as a situation in Britain that was that I remember I was in the country for the Stephen Lawrence situation, which, you know, to me, everything that we've been dealing with in terms of Ahmaud Arbery is, is similar, right? So when you have something like Stephen Lawrence happen in the country, how do youth workers then help young people to deal with things like that if you don't really deal with identity or, or race? So yeah, that's a that's a really that's a really interesting that's a really good question, and I think Stephen Lawrence was almost the first huge case mm -hmm. that we've had. Probably also the last huge case that we've had, mm -hmm. and in some way that that shone a light on on systemic failure of of um, races. And how systems, and also how we just, everybody didn't want to really even point to the fact that it was a racial thing. And we kind of tiptoed around it until, thankfully for, for Stephen's parents, where they mm. constantly pushed the boundaries and eventually was accepted that this happens. And there was all that whole recommendation to, you know, the, the problem, <laughs> the challenge is, uh, you know, when stuff like as much, you know, when stuff like that happens here, in some ways dealt with as a once. I mean, a couple of typical examples would be when we had um, Grenfell building. So Grenfell yes. was something where a whole building um, collapsed. Now, 
that shone a light on in deep inequalities in our system because Grenfell, in, in fact, this was a good learning. Grenfell was based in a very affluent area. And the problems, some of the problems that we have now when it comes to even financing youth work, specific funding goes to areas where we know are um, areas with high indicators of poverty. Mm, okay. Whereas what happens is you then have a, play, a, a building like Grenfell that's located right in the middle of an affluent area, which means that whole community, no one supports any form of youth work there, but you have people who are quite financial, who will be, do you see what I mean? Right, I do. And that's some of the systems we're still battling with, where we're actually advocating and saying, let's not point put money only in areas that has been identified as high levels of deprivation because deprivation is hidden across our society. Part of the systemic um, changes that was asked to happen was that every affluent area must have part of, say, um, social inclusion is that every affluent area must have a little bit of um, social mixing. So with every affluent area, you have a few low-income houses. Mm -hmm. Well, the downside for people who live there is they are not the ones who would have opportunities because they are deemed to live in an affluent area. So there is, I think it still comes back to the problem of the um, a class, a, a very structured or in, ingrained um, class-based system. Um, yeah, it, it's a little bit tricky. It's yeah. really, really tricky. And I, I think a good learning right now, what we're, we're looking at COVID. Yes. Across the, across the globe. Yes. And we are seeing stuff that really points to that indicator of inequality yep. in our systems. Yeah. And that would be an interesting one to look at. When, when we start reviewing this, it'll be interesting to see what comes through. Right. Do you think that that inequality that's highlighted by COVID might sort of force a race conversation in Britain? So, <laughs> I hope so. Okay. I really hope so. Because interestingly, one of the, one of the um, huge TV channels yesterday produced this report where they looked at for every Black or people of ethnic minority or mm-hmm. BAME groups were seven times more likely to die, particularly those who worked in the health services, were more likely to... Oh, I'll share the link with you, actually. Yes, please. We're more likely to, to, to die than their um, counterparts. And they were asking... So this isn't scientific, but they asked, I think, 2,000 um, healthcare professionals for their views on why this. And the three key things that came through was one, the the feeling of, um, firstly, that more BAME people were put on the front front line Mm -hmm. than their their white colleagues. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things that came through and that more BAME people were maybe less confident to say, actually, I don't want to do that, whereas Ah. their white counterparts were more confident to say, 
I don't want to do that. Yes. I don't have the right equipment. I, I'm not going to go. Um, and the thought being, being, you know, you don't want to be seen as the angry, angry person who's making excuses. So you mm-hmm. just get on with it. And there was something, I mean, ultimately, one of the key things that came out of that, which is, I, it was when I saw this news last night, to be fair, I was quite disturbed about it. Mm. It was something about the ability, the confidence to challenge your system. Yes. Yeah. And it talks about representation at the top. If there's no representation at the top, you don't have anywhere to go to and you just feel well, if they've asked me to do that, I have no choice. I'm going to go. Right. And that was ultimately what what the the 2,000 people who responded to that survey were saying. Wow. That that really sucks because it points again to inequality in our system, yeah. which is tough. Yeah, definitely. Really tough to see. Definitely. Thank you. So a lot of this conversation has been really about setting the context. And I, again, I think that's particularly important for, for our audience because I think mostly Americans will listen to it. We do have some some folks in South Africa and Canada that are listening as well. Um, but I think that that's important because folks don't under, I don't think a lot of folks really understand the global nature, right, yeah. of how this operates in the in the British context for me, which you already know. I have an affinity for just because I lived there and um, it was, it was one of the first times that I really understood my blackness, which I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but I was in London um, getting on a subway and I saw this black man with cornrows and jeans. And when I looked at him, I must've been, I think I was a junior in college. So I was still quite young, but I looked at him and I automatically thought that's a black guy. We're both American We're I'm about to, connect with him. And I spoke to him and he opened his mouth and a British accent came out. And I remember being like, there's other types of black people. It was, <laughs> it was one of the first times in my young life that I realized I was part of an, of an entire diaspora. Um, yeah. And so I just really think that that's important for folks. And for yeah. me, because of that, because of that awakening I had in that moment, it's also been important for me to really be more global minded to make sure that yeah. young people have access to opportunities to travel as well, because I feel like you don't know yourself until you do. No, absolutely. It's so true. I remember last summer we were away. We went to, um, uh, what's this place called now? I can't remember for our summer holiday. It was somewhere in the Caribbean. Okay. And I went with my family, the four of us, and we went on one of the, on one of the days we had an excursion and we were in one of those um, um, cars and driving. My son, I was in the car with my son and he was driving down this alleyway. Um, and uh, Dominican Republic was where we went. And um, we saw lots of black people, people of color right on the streets with their babies begging. Mm. And my son at one point said, mom, what are they doing? Why are they begging? And I said to him, son, never ever look down on those people it's called the disadvantage of birth Mm. you're just lucky to be born in a different in a family Mm. and they're not there's no difference between you and them never ever when you ever have an opportunity to do good do it because it's simply about birth Mm. it's a disadvantage of birth that's it the fact that i'm born into one family that gives me access to xyz it's it's an it's an advantage, mm-hmm. and the fact that someone else is born into a different family, that's it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's the work you're doing. Again, that's the work you're doing at the Diana Award. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Leveling Indeed. that playing field. So tell me how your work is helping to reimagine youth work. You know, one of the things that we talk about a lot, I mean, if you strap line is that young people have the power to change the world. And so our work really has young people at the center, at the heart of it, is doing stuff with young people, not to young people. And I think that fundamentally is what makes our work, I guess, different, innovative, because it's about understanding that person and that young person's journey. One of the things I always talk about is the luxury of hope Mm. and that everyone has hope. Everyone is born with a degree of hope, but not everyone has the luxury of fulfilling that dream. Mm. And that's why I use the word luxury, because when you're able to fulfill it, it becomes something you're lucky. Mm. And and, And if you want to make magic for young people, is understanding that individual and helping make that dream come true. And that's not really um, having a one-size-fits-all model. Mm -hmm. That means you have to almost take time with each individual to understand what that dream was in the first place. Mm -hmm. How did it get broken? Where did it get broken? Let's try and fix it together. So for us, I mean, that for me, that's really, and it's when we talk about young people changing the world is giving them the tools and everything they need to then go on and create the change that they need. And it's not me defining that change. I can't define what that change is. Change for X is completely different for change for Y. And, and so it's a very young person-centered approach where young people are really on the driving seat and and it's about, you know, and sometimes we get it wrong sometimes, you know, but it's creating the structure and the framework where young people are able to come back and influence it and change it and give you feedback and you listen. And they, um, one of the things we do is to make sure that young people capture their journey with us in a journal and they're able to share that journal with us because that allows us to hear directly to say, oh, this is, you know, this might be what we intended, but let's understand what they got from it. Because if those two are not the same, then there's something wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like that. And I like that you're talking about dreams. Yeah. I think that that's particularly important. And that's a part of really what this podcast is aiming to do is, you know, how do we reimagine, revision a future, right? And a lot of that is about dreaming, it is though, isn't it? Because you know, like I, it's interesting. Like I, we always say, like no one. Have you ever seen a young person? Let's not say young. Let's say a child mm-hmm. whose dream is to spend their life in jail. Have you ever seen? No. That means there's something broken, because if a three-year-old's dream is not to spend their entire life in jail, how did they end up there? Mm. Or why are they on the path there? Something's broken. Do you know what I mean? And so it's about reconnecting with that three-year-old or that four-year-old and finding out what's that dream? How can we bring you back to it? Because it's only, you know, it's also, we've always had, or we have a 
at one point, but not now because we're all in lockdown, but we always, we kind of have a problem with um, knife crime. Ooh. And there's a thing that you, you almost say, well, no one, most of, something leads young people there. Mm. And how can we interrupt it? How can and the reason some a young person will say, "Look, I don't care. I'm just going to do what, be, what you know. I'm just going to join the gang. Or I'm just going to do X. Um, I don't care about tomorrow." Is because they don't see themselves in tomorrow. And if we can help them connect with tomorrow by helping them know that that dream is achievable, or showing them, you know, a version of that dream that can be achieved. So if you want, there's no point in I'm going to be an astronaut. If you don't like science, yeah. what's the, do you know what I mean? Yes. What's the version of being an astronaut that you actually can see yourself in? Right. And then let's connect the dots. Absolutely. Absolutely. So for the folks that are listening to this, that are practitioners, they work in mentoring organizations, they work in schools. What are some, some strategies that you would offer them to making their work more conscious, more innovative? You know, one of the first things I would say is, you know, it's a saying that says nothing for us without us. Mm -hmm. Do not, do not, you know, if there's anything, listen, we are older. Like I learn new, new things every day. Let's, don't create an agenda without asking the young people to be on that table with you discussing that agenda. Mm. If there's, if there's one thing that I'm, I'm hoping this is like everyone's rolling their eyes. And of course we know this. <laughs> I'm really hoping. You'd be surprised. <laughs> because, <laughs> I'm really hoping people are going, what on earth is she talking about? Of course. Um, and, and, you know, there's a saying that's like, I've met people saying, but how long do you, how long does it take to create change? Well, how long is a piece of string? You know, how long do you advocate for your own children? Mm. If you can't be there for the long run, please don't even be there. Do you know what I mean? And Absolutely. so there's almost, a, for me, it's a few, it's firstly it's that mindset that you'll be there. You're here for the long game and mm -hmm. you will be there. And yes, they would push bound. Yes, all that would happen, but we just never give up. That's mentoring, right? And secondly, it's about don't do it without them. Don't do it without them. Get a youth board together. Get alumni of the program to come back and feedback. Create as many opportunities to hear feedback as possible that helps you reimagine your content and the design of your program. Yeah, I love all of those things. Thank you. And my, my last question for you, Tessie, in your freedom dream, what does the future of youth work look like? Wow. The future of youth work. Hmm. I wonder... I would firstly love, I would firstly love a, I wonder if my first dream, if I'm thinking dream is, I would love to wish for a world that didn't have inequality, firstly. Mm -hmm. That didn't have inequality that was so entrenched in society that when you're trying to 
fighting, people are people are going, oh my God, we didn't realize rather than people really obstructing it. Right. Um, that's almost my dream because that way it almost feels like you're not starting from digging, you know, you're, yeah, that would probably be my first dream. And then youth work. I, I you, you know, one of the interesting things I've noticed from COVID is how as adults, and this applies to a lot of us as adults, we are, we, we're not as caught up with technology. We're not as up to, as relevant in tech with tech as our young people that we serve. Yes. And there's a massive gap. Mm-hmm. You're almost realizing that there's a massive gap. So it, I don't know if you guys have a, an app called House Party. Yes. But, but when lockdown first happened, suddenly, I didn't even know of House Party myself. Like everyone suddenly was on House Party. Um, but it made me realize that actually if our young people that we are serving are so fine to tech and we're not there, Mm -hmm. how are we working with them? There's feels like there's this gap. Yes. And I hope that as we move on beyond COVID that, and the future that that gap become that there isn't a gap that we constantly are aligned with the people that we serve yes and our thoughts are aligned and we are able to serve them broadly and not necessarily using the old systems that we do know that we constantly are innovative in our practice um catching up on tech catching up on whatever whatever the new Grace is that we were there because yeah. when we are there, we bring so much wisdom and emotional intelligence that really supports young people um, beyond just fight, fighting the inequality or whatever. We're just there and we're a good sounding board, a good support board for young people. Yeah. That's a long winded way of saying it. No, I love it. <laughs> I'm, you know what? I'm really glad that you talked about the technology gap. Mm. And, you know, I was going to end it there, but now you're taking me down the road. So just a little (laughs) bit more. (laughs) Because one of the things I've noticed as a teacher, especially right now with COVID, is that, you know, young folks, they know if they have access, you know, they know what to do with it. And a lot of teachers had no clue. No clue whatsoever. And it was like, You've been around young people five days a week for 20 years of your life, and you don't know how to use basic technology. How are you being good for young people? Really? This is it. This is it, though. This is exactly. So so I'll tell you what. So, for example, let's take a typical example. A young person says to you, Oh, um, in a session, they say to you, oh, you know, Miss, I was on um, TikTok the other day. And I'm sorry I'm saying TikTok because this is just made up situations. So forgive me, TikTok. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was on TikTok the other day and someone did something. What do I do? If you're not even on TikTok and you don't even know anything about TikTok, how can you support? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you know how we can fix this? We can fix this by what, and this is where young people, we we almost create this equal playing field. You teach me this and I'll teach you that. Yes. 
and you're constantly and it's no it it takes away the relationship from where doing stuff to you because it's mutually beneficial yeah yeah absolutely oh thank you so much for talking to me tessie thank you for having me <laughs> so we have been talking to tessie ojo who is chief executive at the diana award in the uk She's been talking to us a lot about the British context, the British youth context, the work that she's doing there at the Diana Award. There were some things that were thrown out that I want to make sure I put in the episode notes, things about what's happening with COVID-19 in the UK context. Also, um, Grenfell Tower, which you may not know about. I'll, I'll put some articles in those in the episode notes as well. And then also some very specific language like BAME which I think um, the American context might not be aware of. I'll make sure I define that in the episode notes. We might have to do some translating y'all, but the work is the work is the work, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so I will make sure that those are in the episode notes. In the meantime, y'all keep doing the good work.